My name is Rachel and I've been um, involved with the Rolling Hills Belmont Heights campus and I have been on staff with Justice and Mercy International for five years. So godly friendships have been something that have been really important to me, um, especially in the past seven or eight years that I've lived in the Nashville area. Truly godly friends are those that are willing to take you with your flaws and your shortcomings as we all have and your imperfections, of which I have many, and say, look, I, I see those things, but I see also who you're becoming. I see who Christ is making you to be. And that's a journey that I want to go on with you. And I have so many friends, I can think of so many names right now um, that are willing to do that, to step up day after day. And that's something that I try to do and I've been challenged to do for my friends, um, to be in it for the long haul. I think it's our tendency to look for people who are just like us, but some of my greatest gifts and friendships have been people who are very different than me. I think one of the most Christ-like things that um, my closest friends do for me are, are being willing to have those tough conversations and being willing to say, hey, I know who you are and I know your character and, and to challenge me in a way that is loving and gracious, um, but that also challenges me to be more like Jesus. And those are the moments that are, are often tough, that's tough to hear. Um, but those are the moments that I'm most thankful for people who are willing to speak truth, the truth of the gospel into my life. And it's really challenged me to be more like that and to, to look at the ways that my, my friends have, have molded my own character um, and how I've become more like them in that. And as they imitate Christ, as scripture says, um, we're all becoming more like Jesus himself as we kind of teach and learn from one another. How are you doing today? Okay, I hope really well. I hope better than your response because um, now I feel strange and awkward and I don't recover from that really well often. And so thank you for that. Um, this is going to be a great day. Um, good morning. I'm really glad that you're here and, and I'm glad to be here myself. Um, I, 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 I just have a little bit of a confession um, and, and this is just kind of reveals um, a little bit of my misunderstanding of how the world works. Um, I don't know what good vegetables are. Um, I know that I eat all of them. Now, I don't eat certain preparations of vegetables, like the ones that, like, yeah, there's certain ways that you could prepare squash that I would not enjoy, but squash in and of itself, bring it on, you know. Um, I don't know how a carrot works. Like, I don't, I, please, if you're like, we, we're near universities and colleges and scientific kind of people, and please don't come up to me after the service and start to tell me molecularly or biologically or nutritionally how the vegetables work, because I will be bored, and I will not know how to hide that on my face. And so you'll think I'm being rude, but I'm not. I'm just, I'm telling you, like, I don't know how the carrot works. Like, I don't know, like, what it does and how the body digests it and how it absorbs the nutrients and carries it around to all the other parts of my body and somehow, according to, like, old wives' tale, urban legend makes me see better. Clearly, I'm not eating enough of those. Um, I, I don't understand how the broccoli does good things for me, but what I do know and trust is that it does. There, there are moments in, 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 in life, in, in application, in Scripture where I don't know all the ways that this does good things for me. I can't explain to you how digesting this on a daily basis somehow makes me more able to see. I don't understand fully how digesting this changes my perspective on the world or strengthens my, my muscles or my heart or my ability. Like, 
There are, I don't quite understand how putting it in always manifests itself in good ways on the way out, but somehow I know that it does. And so we invite ourselves as we come in here to this place week after week after week to, to open this up, but not just in this place, but in all those other places that we go and all those other places that you live and that you intersect and that you do life. We invite ourselves to, to take this in because we know somehow, some way, molecularly or biologically, nutritionally, spiritually, it does something really good for us. It does something really great in us and ultimately it changes us to be more like him so we have failed me and susan as parents in about a thousand ways and our kids aren't even that old yet so just give us a few more years and we can triple that number we're heading into teenage years and so i know that that number is gonna okay we've just met but i, I do remember at, at an early age a young age like like reading scripture and telling bible stories and doing things with kids I, I i remember one specific moment with the jesus storybook bible that my oldest kid who's 12 years old pushing 13 like literally looking at the bible and reading the story of shadrach meshach and abednego and her saying daddy Yes, baby. What, what, what is it? Did you recognize that Jesus is also in this story? And I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. Because there is a moment in, in every single one of these stories that we get to encounter the living, breathing Jesus. And as we keep diving in and digesting what this story of Old Testament King David has to say to us today, I, I think that in addition to that... In, in addition to him, we're going to also encounter Jesus. And, and somehow that encounter will do a whole lot more for us than we can think or understand this morning. And so as we, we open up our, our, our Bibles and our scriptures together, I invite you to head to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you've got like a old school analog Bible in front of you, you can like find the pages. It's in the Old Testament. If you didn't bring that, maybe it's on your mobile device. Good luck with signal in the building. We'll also have verses pop up on the screen so that you can read and follow along. I'm a fan of the old school one because then you can grab a pen and underline and write things in the margins that you want to remember later on. And as you get to First Samuel chapter 20, we ask ourselves the same question that we've been asking week after week in this series. Where are we and how did we get here? Like, where are we in this moment and how did we get here? Because the very first week we encountered this kid and the prophet Samuel went to this one family that God told him to go to to find who would be the next king over Israel. And one by one by one, Jesse's sons passed in front of the prophet Samuel and God had chosen none of those. And we're reminded by the good grace of God that it's not our outward appearance that counts. It's not his stature or his height or his abilities or his looks, but that God looks at things that man doesn't look at and chooses based on what's within. And so David gets picked. And then we saw this same David make his way to the battle lines where, where his brothers and his comrades were facing off with a giant, a Philistine giant named Goliath. It's the old school kid story. And, and one by one by one by one, everybody denied the opportunity to do what the Philistine giant requested that they do, which was to send a great warrior. And instead, David volunteers to go. And so what does he do? You know, five smooth stones only took one. He slayed the giant, held up his head, right? And then Saul, the king, who was threatened by David's fame and his popularity among the people, multiple times tried to kill him. And you and I have had those moments. You've had those mountaintop highs where you stepped out on a limb of faith and done something great for God and done something beyond what you thought was possible for you to be able to do, operated in the strength that the God of this great universe had uniquely put in you and then followed that up with a layer of fear, spears, 
from the enemy literally hurling by your head because our enemy attacks. So what did David do at the end of chapter 19? He, he, he fled to that same prophet that had called him out and assigned him the role of future king. He went to Ramah, which was the birthplace of Samuel, where he had set up shop into a place called Naoth. And I looked up Naoth this week because I wanted to understand a little bit better what that was geographically. And ultimately, it's a school for prophets. So, so Samuel had set up a school for prophets. And like I, I read the words in a commentary, school for prophets, and I automatically think Hogwarts. Like I'm literally thinking, oh my gosh, this is where the prophets, this is where they go, this is where they live, this is where they get their capes, this is where they get their wands. And then I realized, well, no, that's a whole totally different story, but this is the school for prophets. And David flees to go there because you have that place too, probably not Hogwarts, but you have that place you go. When you've come off of the mountain and you're heading into the valley and the spears are whizzing by your head, you have that place. And hopefully not just that place, but you have that person that you go to. I saw my Samuel this week. Not, not Samuel literally, but Stan. Sounds a little bit like that. He's a, a, a mentor of mine in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he graciously allowed Susan and I and the kids to go stay at their mountain house in Banner Elk, North Carolina this week, and then they came up for the day and visited us. And it wasn't even two hours long of an intersected visit, but my life was blessed. And he might be one of the Samuels that I run to, the Naoth that I go to when I... I wasn't feeling attacked last week, I promise you, but it was a really good time to get away. Like, I, he's the person that you go to. And, and then you pick up in chapter 20, and, and this is what David is doing on the scene in verse 1. It says, Then David fled from Naoth, Hogwarts, at Ramah, the birthplace of Samuel, and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Because hopefully you don't just have in your life that, that older, trusted, mentor, retreat center that you go to when you need to get away from the world, but hopefully you also have that brother, that sister, that comrade, that co-laborer, that friend, that you can inquire about, that you can bring your troubles to. Never, Jonathan replied. It's like you almost didn't believe what was happening. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. Jonathan apparently didn't know that Saul was busy throwing spears at David's head. But David took an oath, like, I swear to you, dude, this is what's happening, and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Hopefully that person that you have, not just that trusted mentor, not just that Samuel in your life, but that, that trusted friend, that Jonathan in your life, is someone that you can literally count on to look at you and say, hey, whatever you need, I got you. Whatever you need, I, I, I'm here for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast. Think of a new month. And I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked. 
Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said. The plan is unfolding. This is what happened. Let's go out into the field. So they went there together. And Jonathan said to David, I swear... um, I just heard a song in my head. Sorry. Okay. I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has also been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Here's what's going down. See, Jonathan knows and is submitting to the idea that David is going to one day be king. And the only way that he's going to maintain his kingship is to take down every single one of Saul's allies, including his own son. But John says, no, I'm going to do this for you because you're my best friend and I'm going to take care of you in life. Whatever you need, I'm going to do for you. But hey, in the end, when you do come into power, you've got to look out for me and my people too. And it says in verse 16, so Jonathan made, if you're a person that likes to underline verses in your Bible and, and your translation also says the word made, underline that word made, a covenant. And if you're a person that likes to underline verses or words in your Bible to understand a little bit more about what they mean, then underline that word covenant he made a covenant with the house of david saying may the lord call david's enemies to account and jonathan had david reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself then jonathan said to david tomorrow is the new moon feast you will be missed because your seat will be empty the day after tomorrow toward the evening go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. i will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though i were shooting at a target this plan is getting so cool Then I will send a boy and say, go and find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here. Uh, Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go. Because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever about this covenant that you and I are making together. The Lord is the witness of it between you and me forever. Throughout this whole narrative, it's in your notes this morning. If you like to jot things down on the worship guide where it's got like spots where you can fill in blanks throughout this book of the Bible, Saul's own children are aiding Saul's biggest threat. And it's because of this covenant friendship relationship that we see David and Jonathan kind of take a a, a center stage place of prominence within the storyline. And the friendship between David and Jonathan is a model for us. And make no mistake, we need a model of friendship. We are people today that have more social connections than any other generation before us. And we are happier and healthier in a whole host of ways. But unless we have friendships, unless we have solid relationships with other people, unless we are people who maintain solid covenant friendships, we will have higher blood pressure. Like people without friends have higher blood pressure. People without close friends also have higher body mass index. You're looking at me right now and you're thinking, oh my goodness, he needs more friends. I get it. I'm right there with you. I blame America for that. Okay, let's just be honest. Like like people with good friends have lower BMI. It's a good thing. People with good friends are, are less likely to experience depression. Well, that makes sense. 
people with good friends live up to 22% longer. If you want to do the math on that, if you're talking like average 85 years, the, the, the 22% of that is 18. So, so, so somebody with good friends have, has a chance of living anywhere from 15 to 20 years longer than someone without how about this one? Between 1985 and 2004, I know that was like 15 years ago, but this is, this is the trajectory that we have been on, and it has only increased. Between eight, 1985 and 2004, researchers discovered that the number of people Americans called confidants, close friends, reduced by a third. In fact, it gets a little bit worse. The majority of this drop-off was in non-kin, non-family, non-blood relationships, and for men, it's worse because ours dropped by 44%. The, the, the amount of close, confidential friendships that men were able to maintain dropped by 44%. That exact same study found out that 25% of Americans, like a quarter of our population during the time that was studied, had not had a serious, let me tell you something important about my life and myself conversation in more than six months this friendship between david and jonathan is is a model for us and and we need a model the challenge is for everybody but but men in particular because we struggle with friendships to a higher degree and, and committed christ followers like people that have been following jesus for a long 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 time we fare no differently in the world of friendships than someone who does not know christ only the stakes are higher because we're just as desperate for connection as anybody else in the rest of the world. And I read this this week. This is the great irony. Christians fight in the greatest war imaginable. Yet we rarely experience such comradeship. We are deployed against a supernatural enemy. And as shells or spears fly around us, we split up each to his own way. We battle for higher stakes than any other conflict the world has known. And we go for it solo. And as we individually charge the enemy's machine gun nest, we wonder why we are routinely, as a people, cut off. It's foolishness and pride, not courage or faith or bravery, that leads us to storm the gates of hell alone. And so this morning we ask ourselves a question, do you have a friend like that? I just heard that song sung um, a couple of, like a week ago when we took our kids um, to see the new Aladdin remake. If you have not gone to that movie, let me go ahead and give a public service announcement to say it is incredible. And it's not just because we're big fans of Will Smith. We've literally never had a friend like that before. It's like, have you had a friend like this? Like the one described here? Like the one who would take a bullet for you? The one who would go up against all odds not just for you but with you do you have a friend like that are you a friend like that do you have a friend who in your notes would take a faith-filled risk and also inspire others to do the same the one who said in chapter 20 verse 4 whatever you want me to do i'm going to do for you this was at a great personal risk and it took a great deal of work here's the deal about friendship Friendship takes a great deal of work. The, the benefits of that submission and that authority far outweigh the effort that you have to put forth to make it work. The problem with friendship is 
Well, it's the same problem with everything else in our culture. We desire godly friendships. We yearn for godly friendships. We, 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 we yearn for the outcome of this friendship without the time and the investment and the sacrifice that's necessary to make it happen. And, and what you kind of need to know if you want to evaluate Jonathan is he's not the only one that's receiving a big benefit from aligning himself with the future king chosen by God over Israel. He wasn't just getting the benefit of the friendship by befriending somebody who was... Da- I mean, David's known as a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you want to be friends with that guy? David is also receiving the lion's share gift of having Jonathan as a friend. If you go backwards in the story, like if your Bible has a, a ribbon in it that's like a built-in bookmark, you can kind of put it right there right now and then flip back backwards before we even encounter David to 1 Samuel chapter 14 because Jonathan, it's in your notes, this was not the first time, chapter 20, that he went rogue. This is not the first time that he took a risk. This is not the first time that he went outside the bounds in order to do what God's will had accomplished in his life. Jonathan in chapter 14, it says this, one day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, this guy doesn't even get a name in scripture, but he has an important role to play, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side, not by themselves, Well, not by himself, but with just one other guy. That doesn't make any sense. Let us go to the Philistine outpost on the other side. What does it say next? But he did not tell his father. His father, who was camped out, waiting for God to perform a miracle, even in light of his own disobedience, Jonathan said, no, God has made a promise to us that these people are going to be ours. Let's go over there and see what's happening. And so Jonathan invites his young armor bearer to go with him, but he didn't tell his father. Not only is he going outside the bounds of what his king, the father, would have allowed in that moment, but he's also doing it at great personal risk with his armor bearer because they're just two dudes against an entire camped out army. And unless we forget, at this point in the entire camped out army, they still had a giant with his head on. David hadn't been called out as king yet. David hadn't come to the enemy lines and been willing to fight the giant yet. To Jonathan, there he is, ready to take a risk and inviting and inspiring somebody else, this young armor bearer, to do the same. Just so we know, this armor bearer, he doesn't get enough credibility in the story because whose armor is he carrying? Jonathan's. When they go up against the Philistines, Jonathan is going to be the one in the armor and the armor bearer is the one who just gets to carry it, pass it off, and then stand there like a sitting duck while they go again. Like, this is a big time risk. You need some friends who aren't just holding you back, but who are willing to toe the line of faith with you and go whatever distance God has called you to Go. You need a friend in your life who's not only going to take that faith-filled risk, but inspire you and push you and propel you and invite you and grab your hand and pull you along to, to do the same. You need a friend who takes those kind of risks and inspires other people to do the same. A friend who, even though they don't understand how this works, believes that it does. And is willing to take God at his word regardless of how crazy it sounds, regardless of how ludicrous it sounds, regardless of how nutty it is, a friend who is willing to live out a life of faith. But Jonathan looked at David and said, whatever you need, I got you. This wasn't the first time that he'd taken that kind of risk. You need a friend with a history of taking those kind of faith-filled risks for God. You also need a friend who, number two, values your well-being even at their own expense. 
You need a friend in life who's willing to put you first. Side note, in order to have a friend who's willing to put you first, you have to be a friend who's willing to put others first. Jonathan, he hatched that plan. He hatched that plan in verse 24 of chapter 20. He goes to the banquet. He sits by his father. He waits for his dad to have this moment where he looks around and says, well, wait, where's David? Why isn't he at the meal with us? And Jonathan looks at him and he tells the whole thing that David had said, oh, he had to go to Bethlehem. He needed to worship and make a sacrifice with his family. And he waited for the result. Was Saul going to say, oh, that's great. I'm glad. I hope, he ha- I hope he has a good trip. Tell him to come see me when he gets back. Or is it going to be that moment where he fuels with anger because he's missing yet another opportunity to take this kid out. Maybe there was poison in the supper. I have no idea how Saul planned the attack that day. But what happened in the story, if you continue reading in chapter 20, he was angry. And because of his anger and his outrage, Jonathan was grieved. Because he knew that David was indeed right. And that his own father was trying to take out his own best friend Verse 30 of First uh, Samuel chapter 20, it says Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. So now the anger is not just at David because he wants to take him out so that he can't be the future king. His anger is now transferred to his own son. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Isn't that true? Like we kind of do like not, not I don't know about the woman, but like we kind of do that. Like when our kids are like all good, we're like so proud that like this is my son, this is my daughter. But when they're like not being good, you're like, oh, you're just like your mother. Like this is, this is like he's calling him out and say, you son of an awful wretched woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? The mistake that Saul was making in this moment was that Jonathan had not sided with the son of Jesse. Jonathan had sided with the living God. And I pray that there's never a moment in, in, in my life as a parent where, where my children are forced to choose God over me because I hope it's always choosing God and me. I hope I always stay on that side. And I hope and pray that they do as well. Don't I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Yeah, the perverse and rebellious woman, that her. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You talk about expense. Jonathan was next in line. Jonathan was one battlefront away where his dad, who had a head and shoulders above all the other fighting men in Israel, Jonathan was only one giant battle away from having the throne. And yet he was willing to sacrifice all of that for this particular friendship. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. This was at great personal risk and at great personal expense. You have a friend who values you like that? Who, who is willing to put your needs first? Are you a friend like that who's willing to put the needs of others first? This is not the, the first time that Jonathan had experienced that kind of friendship if you're tracking along, if you go back to chapter 14 and, and you look at these verses in chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, it says that Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. And that's an important detail because here's 601 persons underneath a tree while two dudes go and meet the battle lines. 
among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother. You go down this list of lines, and, and on verse 4 it says, On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, and the other was called Sena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other toward the south of Gibeah. Jonathan said, verse 6, to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, basically non-Jews, the Philistines, then he says, perhaps, maybe, this is a 50-50 shot, dude. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. But, but this part is 100%. Maybe God will act. But nothing, nothing, 100% can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many, 601, or by few, just two. Maybe God will do it. Maybe he won't. But when you look at the possibility of it, God certainly can fight our battles. And the armor bearer, he, he said to Jonathan, what Jonathan said to David in chapter 20, verse 4, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. Whatever you need, I will do for you. He said, I am with you, heart and soul. People, like today, maybe for all days, but definitely today, struggle with that type of heart and soul friendship. And I think the reason why we struggle with that type of heart and soul friendship is because we also struggle with the idea of covenant friendship. See, covenant, as you read it in Scripture, but not just this passage, but literally almost every other passage in the Old Testament, because 27 out of the 39 books say this word over and over and over and over and over again. It's the word berit, and it means alliance, it means pledge, it means agreement. And if you look at the definition of the word, it takes on a lot of different shapes and forms. Like in some passages of Scripture, when you read the word covenant, berit, it's talking about the covenant promise between God and man. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He renewed a covenant with people for all generations. He eventually would give the people that he chose, Jesus, to be a salvation and a light and a beacon for the whole world. Like this whole covenant relationship between God and man, we're comfortable with that use of the word berit. As it relates to God keeping his promises to us, we understand that that is definitely a covenant relationship. We're also covenant, even though we mess it up a lot with the idea of that word being used to define marriage. Parts of scripture use that word covenant, bear eat, to describe the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. But there's a third part of that definition that we're not so comfortable with and we don't necessarily automatically run to. In a culture where we downplay the idea of friendship, oh yeah, you've been friend zoned. As if friend is not a really good thing. Or in a culture where we say, oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're just friends. As if there's some sort of playing field where it's better to be way more than friends. As if friendship in and of itself is not enough. That idea of bear eat of covenant relationships, not only the one between God and man and between man and a woman, also extends to the idea of friendship. Same word, same usage, same definition, same alliance, same pledge, same agreement, same promise, same responsibility to be in that deep of a connection with another person. And we can't make the mistake and assume that, 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 that covenant love can be convenient love. It's in your notes, covenant love is never, it, it's not ever a convenient kind of love. It's, it's a sacrificial love. It's a difficult love. It's a go to the battle lines love. Proverbs 17, 17 says a friend loves at 
all times, and a brother is born for what? Easy, breezy days. No. Friend loves at all times. And that brother that you're in a covenant relationship called friendship is born for the adversities that you face in life, which you cannot go alone. Ephesians chapter 4 says, From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? Love. The kind of love that is eternal, the kind of love that is unconditional, the kind of love that lasts, the kind of love that makes it possible for you to face difficulty together. And I don't understand fully the ways that we are being knit together as a human body of Jesus Christ in this world. But I know that when we are working out the love relationship that God has called us to have in the context of our not just marriages, not just salvation, but friendships with one another, we can literally see the power of God working when we trust this. At some point in that passage, chapter 14, if you look closely, you'll do what Lily Kate said years and years ago, you'll recognize that Jesus is in that story too. You'll recognize that he's right there with it because this story, number three in your notes, has the possibility, just like every story in the Old Testament, of pointing you to a powerful connection with Jesus, which always includes, always includes submission to the sovereign authority of God in your life. When you get to verse eight in chapter 14, it says, Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, come on then. If you're willing, come on. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and we will not go up. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them to our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes that they were hiding in. And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. You don't have to read much further. But I'll just go ahead and tell you the attack went really well that day. Two against who knows how many. That word sign when Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, hey, this will be our sign, it's the, the Hebrew word oath. In Exodus chapter 12, when they had to paint the blood on the doorpost of their home so that the death angel would pass over them, Moses told the people, this will be a distinguishing mark, an, an, an oath. The blood was the oath. And then Deuteronomy, when he told them to, to write these words that the Lord was God and the Lord was one and that they were to love him with all their heart and their soul and their mind, they were to put that on the door frames of their house. That, that word was the distinguishing mark. It was no longer the blood over the doorpost. It was the words over the door frames that were the distinguishing mark that set Israel apart. And then the blood of Jesus and the word that he brought to us was that oath. We, we see him in this story as the sign of God's covenant promise that was going to restore us as a people and build us up as his 
body in Jesus. Oh my goodness, he's Jonathan in this story because Jonathan who befriended a young armor bearer who was way beneath him. Jonathan who befriended a shepherd boy who was status-wise way beneath him. And Jesus Christ who in the book of Philippians befriended even us who were way beneath him. Paul describes him this way. Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. That's Jonathan in this story. Each of these friendships in his life was technically beneath him. Nothing points us to Jesus better than that. Somebody who would be willing to make that kind of sacrifice and go that kind of distance and take that kind of risk at their great personal expense to be in a covenant friendship relationship with someone else. It matters. This, this idea of friendship in Scripture matters. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And that idea of friend, it's not just an acquaintance. It's not just somebody you know. The Greek definition of that word also extends to a specific type of friend, a best friend. And in fact, it's the same word that's used for best man in a wedding. The definition is one of the bridegroom's friends who on his behalf asks for the hand of the bride and renders him various services in closing the marriage and celebrating the nuptials. It's not just our, our covenant marriage, but our, our covenant friendships that must bear a, a Christ-like, sacrificial, risk-taking, forever-filled promise. We need people in our lives that will go that kind of distance. And in order to have people in our lives that will go that kind of distance, we need to be people in other people's lives who will go that kind of distance, charge that kind of hill, have our back, hold us accountable, and spur us on in Christ. Who in this room would take a bullet for you? Probably not the people that don't know your name. So that's why we say uh, this, this body that God is knitting together. That these Sunday morning experiences are not just about content. Listen. If you are coming to church only for content you could save yourself the gas and stay home because there's really good content available online. There's some fantastic sermons out there. There are some unbelievable Bible study resources out there. If it's just content you want, it's, it's not just content. It, it's community. That, that God is building up a, a body of people. Let me tell you, that's why we're spinning our wheels with announcements in the worship God on Sunday mornings telling you that there's a women's gathering or that men drink coffee or that we're going axe throwing because we definitely are, mainly because I want to, but because I think it will be fun to do that with you. But let's just be, it's, we're not going axe throwing just because I want to, but because we're going to build community, because we're going to be the kind of friends who would do that. Who, who, who would charge a hill, who would take a risk, who would take a bullet for one another, who would get face-to-face, eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe, and tell you that you're wrong, and even risk the friendship because they, they value you and your holiness and your relationship with Jesus even more than they value what you bring to the table, even more than the way you make them feel. 
this type of friendship is a, is a covenant relationship that God has given to us as a gift. He didn't just give us himself. He gave us the church, the body of believers who are to spur us on to, to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And that doesn't happen when we don't know each other. My, my prayer for this campus, my prayer for us this morning is that if you already have that kind of friendship, if you already have that kind of person in your life, that you'll do what, what Jonathan asked David to do. In verse 17, it says, and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. He said, hey, tell me again what our friendship means to you. Let's, let's, let's reaffirm that commitment. Let's renew that vow that we've made to one another to be besties through thick and thin whatever happens. That word made, that hopefully you underlined in your Bible if you're using the analog version like I am today, is the word carrot. And I have no idea how much that carrot means, but it means a lot. Because your willingness to make, to carrot, that kind of oath, to someone, that kind of promise to someone, to receive that kind of oath, to receive that kind of promise from someone will make an incredible eternal difference in our lives. It, it will, will, will not be the thing that takes you to heaven because that's Jesus and his sacrifice alone, but it will be the thing that allows you to charge the gates of hell because we are not called to do that alone ever. What we do on Sundays matters because of what we do the rest of the week. We go into other places in this world that are dark and difficult and challenging, and we get to take Jesus there. And we're better at taking Jesus where we go when we're with others. To have the kind of covenant friendship that Jonathan and David had, you have to be one or the other. You have to be willing to become that kind of friend yourself. When I look back at the, the research that says we don't do friendships well, when I look back at the statistics that say that men in particular do not do friendships well, when I evaluate my own life and look over the trajectory of walking with Jesus in it and, and try to pick and choose the friends that I've had and the friend that I was that could be equated with a Jonathan or a David in that circumstance, I, I fall painfully short as I know maybe many of you do too and, and I ask myself the question maybe the reason why I have not been so intentional about cultivating those types of friendships those types of bonds why have I not looked at the friendships in my life as a bond that could be as close as anything else a brother in arm and maybe in moments in my life it's because I've forgotten that I'm at war that it's a necessity. And regardless of whether or not you understand why it's a necessity, will you take this book at its word and trust that it is? You need these kind of relationships and your life is suffering without them. And so that's what we want to do. We want to be a people who, if you need to, reaffirm those kind of friendships, rekindle those kind of relationships, re re remake that kind of oath to someone to say, hey, look, I don't want to just be people that go to a game together. I don't want to be just the people that are connected on social media. I don't want to be just this, the people that like the same music or like the same movies or like the same books or live next door to another. I want to be the kind of friend that will go to war with you, and I want the same from you. So 
let's hold each other to the line and let's be willing to go to battle. If you need to, whoever that friend is, rekindle that part of the covenant relationship today. But maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I've never had that or I do not have that now. Let this be a place where you are known. Some of you come week after week after week and I've met you once or twice and, and, and I, I wouldn't want to come up to you again and ask for your name that fourth or fifth time. Um, but you've come here and you've remained anonymous. Never met a stranger, never filled out a communication card because for you this place is just about the content that you get when you come. But you haven't taken that risk. You haven't gone up that hill. You haven't looked at the cliffs on the side and said, okay, I'm willing to, at great personal risk, and I'm, I'm willing to be known so that I can know someone else so that I can possibly, maybe one day, with someone else in this room, develop the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan had. I believe that for whatever reason you came in off the streets, whether it was the sign outside or an invitation of someone else, that God might have brought you here. Some of you are like, maybe he brought me here to introduce me to my spouse. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? We love matchmaking at church. Hello. But why does it always have to go there? I believe that if God brought you here, he might have brought you here to introduce you to his son, Jesus, so that you could have salvation. I believe that if God brought you here, he might have brought you here to introduce you to your spouse so that one day y'all can get married and have lots of kids and just live whatever the American dream you want. Maybe. Maybe God brought you here just to give you a best friend. Don't discount that because it's covenant. It gets the same barit that God and Abraham got. It gets the same berry that Nick and Susan got. Covenant. And it's good for us. Whether we understand how good it is for us or not, it's good for us. We need it. So we can live longer and have lower blood pressure. No, so that we can make an eternal lifelong difference in the world. So that you can bear Jesus as a sign everywhere you go with someone else. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for this day and this time of worship and connection. And what we ask this morning is that not only would you help us to know everything that it means to have a relationship with you, you would also remind us and restore in us the value of having relationships with others. Jesus, you are good, and you've offered us the best gift in friendship. You laid down your life for us. But then you also told us that we could lay down our lives for one another. And I pray that we would be the kinds of Jonathans and the kinds of Davids who would go that distance. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. As kind of a close of our worship gathering this morning, we come to the table. Um, and it's really fun that we call this, fun, that we call this communion. Because communion and community go together. Uh, and so this morning, I invite you to take elements. These elements are, 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 are nothing. It's, it's a gluten-free cracker and some juice. But to us, they mean something. Uh, they mean the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of our Savior so that we might have an eternal home with Christ in heaven. It's, it's the picture of our salvation. It's, it's the image. It's... it's it's what reminds us of what Jesus did for us. And I love that when you come, you're going to be served by someone who gets to serve you. 
And I love that we'll see lines forming on both sides of this aisle because it's all of us coming together to take communion as a community. As you do, maybe you'll let the Holy Spirit of God work in your heart and life to remind you of how important that community is and to inspire you to be a greater part of it. For some of you, that means going back to your seat and grabbing your pen and filling out that connection card just so we can know you. For some of you, it means making a phone call or knocking on a door when you leave this place. For some of you, it means just hitting your knees or back in your seat and saying, God, would you, would you help me be this kind of friend? And would you bring this kind of friendships in my life? We cannot come to this table alone. And we cannot go out into this world alone. If you're a David, you need a Jonathan. And if you're a Jonathan, you need a David. And we come to the table together thanking Jesus for making it possible for us to have heaven but for us to also have those kind of hope-filled relationships in our lives. When you're ready, would you come?